This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Who wants to play a game? It's time for hide and seek. Says hide and seek, are we really going to play that? This is the emergency broadcast system. It is intended for mature audiences. Now, a warning. You're with the sex pits. Hide and seek on joy. I'm too sexy for my love. Too sexy for my love. Love's going to leave me. Yes, you are with the Sexperts on Hide and Seek on Joy 94.9. I am your host, John Cock, and I am here with the amazing Stefan Ferris, who is joining us all the way from the United States. Welcome to the show, Stefan. Hey there, Mr. Cock. How's it going? Absolutely fantastic. Now, look, thank you for joining us tonight because we are continuing on with a series on porn and the wonders of content creation and interviewing a whole bunch of people who've been involved in the industry across the years. And so I'm going to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land upon which we're broadcasting. For us here at the Victorian Pride Centre, that's the lands of the Alicut Wheelam clan of the Boonwurrung peoples of the Greater Kulin Nation. We acknowledge their history of storytelling and the fact that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and sovereignty was never ceded. Now, look... Speaking of seated, uh, <laughs> Stefan, as as an expert on the field of porn, you have been a, kind of an icon for the porn industry for a number of years. Just can you tell us a bit about yourself? <laughs> Are you calling me old? <laughs> no, no. no oh, please don't take it like that. Like you, you're younger than me. <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess I, I was a a porn star of a a certain era, uh, kind of a transitioning, transitionatory area between, um, kind of like, I don't know, the transition from like safe back to bareback porn. Uh, I started doing Mm -hmm. porn right before prep came out. Uh, it was very stigmatized to do porn as a positive performer. And the assumption was if you did bareback porn, you were positive. Like you didn't even have to be out. Like people just assume that. Yeah. Um, but it was, I don't know, for me, it was kind of an interesting time. It gave me like a platform to kind of speak up and do some HIV education and outreach. And yeah. That's awesome. Because I think certainly the area of uh, HIV outreach and uh porn stars as activists is something that doesn't really get acknowledged uh, particularly well. And that as some of the people that get seen in the community quite a lot, that's a really unique place to be. I look at some of the people that we've had on the show before. So last week we had our great big content creators panel. Previously, back in uh, episode 23, we had uh, Chase Ackland, who was a uh, Treasure Island porn star. Uh, and back in 2013, we actually had uh, Dick Savvy, the naked barber, who's uh, also been uh, with Treasure Island uh, and a good friend to the program as well. But one of one review of your memoir says that you opted for sex with strangers uh, and soon moved into 
uh, porn films. How how did that leap actually occur? Yeah. Um, so I moved to San Francisco right when I turned 18. I got into school at SF State, and I basically learned the layout of San Francisco by hooking up with guys on Manhunt and using MapQuest to get around. <laughs> um, and it really was just kind of like hooking up with some random dude online. He's like, hey, I'm going to this circle jerk later in the week. They're looking for extra people. Would you want to come and check it out? Um, so I did just do that. Uh, he ended up not showing, actually. Um, but I showed up. I ended up doing a few more jerk-off scenes and then slowly just kind of worked my way on to bigger and wider things. Okay. And uh, since getting involved with porn, which we'll talk more about in a moment, uh, you then later transitioned into law and actually representing our community uh, in court. Tell us about that. Uh, so I don't actually go to court. I am a transactional attorney, oh, so I just I just focus on uh, like contracts and things like that. Um, okay. Porn for me always was kind of a fun hobby. Um, mm-hmm. I always had like some sort of day job like, or maybe a night job. <laughs> uh, I bartended a lot. Uh, I went to school. My undergraduate uh, degree was in radio and television. So I have, I've always had an interest in media. Uh, and then awesome. I developed an interest in media law, which kind of drove me to go to law school. So I guess to some extent, I was like kind of always on that path and just porn was happening on the side of all of these things. Okay. And you've been very open about some of the the challenges that you've had and some of the obstacles you've had to overcome. You uh, spoke in your book, Blue Movie, about uh, your fight with addiction and the hard yards that you've had to put in, which that's such a big topic to uh, actually go into. And I think it takes a lot of courage to talk about how much that can impact your life. So, as uh, how have you found that porn and uh, addiction have actually gone together? Yeah, um, it's weird. Like I, I've done a lot of work for Treasure Island, and I get a lot of people that like, "How high were you in those videos?" And I actually was pretty sober in pretty much every scene I've did except one. I always managed to keep that separation. Um, when my, my drug of choice was math and when I use math, I just would be super sweaty and not confident and it's not, <laughs> mm. it's not a cute look for the camera. Um, but yeah, yeah. Th- those two, like, I guess if anything, if I had a scene that motivated me not to use, if anything, I like maybe had like a shot of whiskey or like smoke some joints before, uh, but nothing super hardcore. I would say on the okay. other side of the spectrum of sex work. Um, like meeting with clients, that was a little more triggering because you would get people that would want to spend time with you and would want to give you money to use drugs with them. And that definitely made it a lot more difficult to walk away from, especially when I didn't have other means of making money and could make most of my rent in an evening doing that. Okay, because I suppose the the public perception and uh, probably one of the misperceptions that people have about porn is that uh, for some people, 
uh, being in porn and drug use go hand in hand and that the porn industry can lead you to uh, drug use and so on, where from what you're saying is that uh, for you, it was kind of the reverse, like being on a porn set, it was not an environment that you wanted to. Yeah, I I would say being like being both queer and a sex worker, like those communities are maybe more inclined to have substance use issues. Um, mm. And I definitely have heard of like kind of rampant drug use on set. Um, I talk about porn in like different eras and performing in a certain era. I feel like yeah. the drug use era of porn was before me where there would be just like rampant cocaine and stuff on set. And yeah. I feel like by the time I started doing porn, there was a little bit of a course correction where people were more professional and discreet if they were using drugs. Uh, we used to get provided yeah. um, Viagra and Trimix, which yeah. is the injectable Viagra, until yeah. someone, stu- su- I, uh, I think it was a kink.com person, sued the studio for emotional distress from having to give the shot. And then the studio stopped even giving that out. They're like, if you want to take dick pills and do it, do it on your own time, but we're not going to provide any substances for you. And certainly if you are wanting to hear more about some of the things that people have used to stay hard on set, please feel free to listen to last week's episode, the content creators panel, uh, where we talk about some of the do's and don'ts on that. And so we've been discussing your time as an adult film star. So one of the things that, we've been talking about a bit on the program lately is the the process with content creation. And because we've been talking to a lot of people who were involved with uh, the more current content creation uh, avenues like the fan sites and all of that, it's pretty different between that and studio porn, even with uh, the styles that you've seen with uh, Treasure Island when you were shooting. Um, tell us about the process that would occur with Treasure Island? Yeah. um, So Treasure Island was pretty easy. Uh, You usually would be informed of what the scene would be beforehand and who the other models were going to be. Sometimes, sometimes like if I was traveling, I could be like, hey, I'm going to London. I would love to work with these guys. And they would do their best to kind of make that happen. Um, But basically, they find a filming location uh, you show up, you show your ID, you sign your consent releases, and then you it's kind of a free-for-all for maybe two to three hours. Like, the when I was doing studio work, the Bareback Studios gave very little direction. Uh, if anything, they'd be like, like move, move your leg up so we can get the camera in yep. here. Um, and it was, it was kind of, like, very fun-based. It was like, just go have fun, and we're going to film it, and then you come at the end, and then everyone gets paid. The Mm condom studios were a lot more complex. Uh, It -hmm. would probably be about two days of shooting, one day and eight to 10 hour day of just photos and you're like posing and then they have to change their lights and then a separate day for just filming with a lot of stop and go because like every single time they change an angle, they need to get their lighting perfectly and... Wow. Okay, that's that's not what I expected. (laughs) Yeah, it was much. It was much more fun and easy to do the bareback stuff because you were just like in and out, literally. <laughs> and were there any particular challenges that you found with uh, either format? Um, I definitely didn't like doing the mainstream stuff. I mean, it got publicized more and it was more widespread. 
Um, but it actually like felt like work. I feel like in those scenes, there was a lot more kind of gay for pay guys that like yeah. the second the camera stopped, like there's no chemistry. They're like off on their phone or, or even worse, mm. they're like trying to get in the mood by watching straight porn on their phone with the sound on. Um, yeah, it's very, it's very disconnected. Uh, whereas like the bareback stuff, like it's usually you're paired with a dude that's like down and ready to fuck that you're into. And even when the cameras aren't rolling, there's some sort of chemistry that's going on. Look, that's actually a really important point is that, uh, the chemistry between performers is like, you can tell when they're putting it on, you can tell when they're, they're not into it. And sometimes, yeah, with the, the gay for pay performers, it's like, they're smiling through gritted teeth or they're, uh, you just, you can tell they don't want to be there. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very much into like kissing and making out and that, that usually doesn't happen with those kind of performers. Yeah, actually. Cause nothing really gets me going more than a good makeout session. So it's just like, cool. You want me to actually do something for your stuff? cool i can do that just like let's make out for a bit first and then i'm good to go um but i think one of the things that you touched on earlier is some of the stigma surrounding uh being in porn and uh you in particular were involved in a number of scenes that got quite a bit of controversy there was uh one scene from the movie viral loads that had a gangbang scene and i remember being told that a lot of people came up with the misconception that you had actually uh, gotten HIV from doing porn, particularly the the porn scenes that you've done with Treasure Island, where uh, that wasn't the case. So, what? Tell me about some of the stuff that you had to go through. Yeah. Um, so, I guess I guess the misconception came from Treasure Island, kind of blatantly marketing it that way. Um, I always wanted to do a gangbang. Like, it's too much work for me to set up on my own. So it was very easy to have yeah. the studio set it up. Um, I had been positive and out to, like, friends and other performers. And Treasure Island asked, would you be comfortable, like, being openly positive? And I had to think about it because it could, like, limit some work. But at some point, I was like, fuck it. Let's do it. Um, but I didn't really realize that the way that they were going to present me as being openly positive was a quote-unquote conversion scene, um, mm. which was a little irritating, but also, like, I understand how that fetish is hot for a lot of people. Uh, it's hot for people who are already HIV positive, the, the kind of, like, bug-chasing fantasy. And I think yeah. it kind of goes back to the point you mentioned earlier about activism. I, I don't feel like porn has a duty to educate. I think porn is fantasy and entertainment. Like you don't go and watch a screen movie and have them be like, but you really don't kill people. Like you're not supposed to do that. This is like how things go in yeah, the real world. Exactly. You go and you enjoy a horror movie, re like taking it for what it is. So in terms mm. of like that porn, I feel like it's people can consume it that way. And then if you're a performer or a studio and you have a platform, it's up to you if you want to, have an activist like stance towards it yeah and i think some of the uh the studios in the past have had uh 
almost like public service announcements going over their end credits or that kind of thing or uh, on the starts of DVDs and so on, where it's acknowledging, guys, this is fantasy. Uh, This is not what you would do in real life. I mean, uh, I've... One of the people that we've had on the show before actually wrote a lot of erotic novels and she described it as being part of formula fiction. And I think you look at some porn and it really does follow a very set structure. Like uh, one of the major studios in the United States used to uh, every single bit was oh, these two people are making out as they're getting undressed and then there's a blowjob to completion and then there is fucking to completion and that's the format of every single scene. And that's not the way that sex works in real life. It's pure fantasy. They're doing it that way because it's what they see works. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree with that. And I, I feel like people didn't pick that up with the Treasure Island. I mean, and that's that was part of their brand was being controversial. Um, yeah. But like the the kind of blowback I got, even from people within the gay community, uh, was like, how dare you promote like this unsafe sex message? And how dare you promote unsafe sex practices? Uh, and it gave me the opportunity to be like, no, actually, I'm already HIV positive. There was no risk here at all uh if anything yeah. there was a risk for gonorrhea or chlamydia like any sexual risk that can be treated uh and on top of that like i'm taking my meds like i'm undetectable uh yeah. i'm not gonna say the status of everyone else but people else other people on the set were positive other people were negative and taking prep mm-hmm. um and it became a great conversation starter for me to talk about those aspects in addition to the fantasy. So people could enjoy the porn video and then all the controversy it created caused an, uh, created an opportunity for activism. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point is that the conversations that get started are far more important than the content of the videos uh, in terms of uh, the benefit. Um, yeah, people can get off on a fantasy but still understand the important realities that we're all faced with. So the, it's the same old idea that uh, playing first-person shooter games is uh, increasing violence. It's like, mm, is it though? Like people can separate fantasy from reality. There's uh, not a lot of risk there. Now, one of the other things that you spoke about uh in your book is uh, quite a familiar story. As you mentioned earlier, the uh, prevalence of uh, meth abuse in the queer community, the fact that you've had to uh, be be exposed to it in sex work situations as well. Um, There's been a lot of very beloved community members, including porn icons that we could both name, uh, who've battled addiction. what impact did your adult career and substance issues uh, have together? Like, do you think that you could have managed one or the other better if you weren't dealing with the other? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think my my uh, my method of using was I would binge use for like five days rest and then work really hard. So I always to some extent managed to keep up with some of my commitments that I could reschedule and shoots like that. 
Um, yeah, I think at a certain point, though, like making the decision to to not use math and to and to do recovery uh, did have did force me to kind of like reevaluate the way that I approach sex. Um, I didn't want to like some people take sex completely off the table. I didn't want to do that. Um, but I've had to like create ground rules. Like for me, I, I usually don't go on like the hookup apps and stuff like that because pretty shortly after I, I, I know what profiles to look for that are kind of using. And I early mm. in recovery didn't have the, the, the strength to kind of like block profiles and stuff like that. We've been talking a lot, uh, about some of the heavier subjects to do with porn, but Let's lighten the mood a little with a little game that we call This or That. Now, what we're going to do is I am going to read out a bunch of two option phrases and you need to pick one or the other. So I'm just pulling up my list. Number one, big dicks or fried chicken? Big dicks. Less calories. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Uh, <laughs> very health conscious. I love it. Red or yellow? Red. I like this thing. Okay. Excellent. Bed or park? Ooh. Uh, I just got a new mattress and I'm very protective of it, so I'd rather go fuck in the park. Awesome. Cuddles or kissing? Kissing. Excellent choice. Otters or wolves? Otters, for sure. I'm dating an otter, so got to go with that one. Oh, yay. Um, pink or Kylie? Wait, what is it? Pink or Kylie? Oh, Kylie, for sure. 100%. I just got tickets to go see her in Vegas. I'm very excited. Oh, yes. I saw. Actually, you know what? I saw Kylie in Vegas in 2009. I for, Was it Aphrodite or... I think I, think well, I saw it her was, there too. <laughs> uh, okay, so this was just before she uh, did a series of shows in LA. She did one show at the Rio in Las Vegas, and it was kind of like a cut-down version of the Kylie X show. So she came in on the skull, down onto the stage, the whole bit there. It was really, really fun to watch, but... Uh, I'm just there going, I got dance floor tickets on the day for a hundred bucks. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yes. Yeah, that that was a deal. Anyway, sorry, back to the game. Beer or vodka? Neither, I'm sober. Poppers. Fantastic. Good call. Okay. Night or day? Night. Sauna or dungeon? Ooh. Uh, sauna. I love, I love the Steamworks in Chicago. And most saunas have a dungeon element to them, so you get both. Okay. See, that's actually one thing that's a little different over here. You've got two real types of uh, sex on premises venues. You've got the ones that are a lot more dungeon feel to them, and they tend to be clothed sex on premises venues, or our saunas, which are uh, generally towel, lots of tile, and it's a lot more wet area focused so okay yeah i guess ours are a little bit like we have the wet areas but then they also have like the glory holes and slings and all that so awesome okay and summer or winter winter i don't like the heat fair beards or chest hair Ooh, chest hair fantastic <laughs> <laughs> 
Look, that was this or that for this week, and we'll kick back into the rest of the interview. So, look, you were talking earlier about how uh, porn was really a side hustle, and there was always uh, something else to go, and during that time, you transitioned to law. So, you're a community activist, you're involved in championing a lot of causes, and... So what have been the more important causes that you've championed during your time? And did your adult work kind of inform your passion towards those causes? Yeah. Um, I'd say like, like kind of three distinct ones stick out. I think, I think at first when I was kind of like balls deep in porn, it was a lot of education around HIV transmission and U equals U. Uh, just because a lot of people, especially in sex work, at first didn't know about it. It took a minute for it to catch on and for people to believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really hate the AIDS healthcare foundation. Uh, they're kind of like the Luther core of HIV care. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. They're, they're a nonprofit and on their face, they're good because they're trying to prevent HIV, but they also take their nonprofit money and create laws that try to like mandate condom usage and porn. And, on their face, it's, hey, do you want to save porn stars from HIV? And most people were like, yes, of course, let's vote for this. Um, but if you like get into the nitty gritty of the law, it was a really shitty law. So kind of doing mm. outreach on on kind of sex-based laws. There's another law in the United States called SESTA-FOSTA, which basically criminalizes commercial sex speech online. It equates... Yeah. What you what we all know as actual sex trafficking with consensual yeah. sex work, um, and then most recently, like I've, uh, I'm hitting almost two years sober. When I when I first started going to meetings, it was a very black and white approach, um, which doesn't work for a lot of people, and there's a yeah. lot of stigma about kind of meeting people where they're at. So I think lately, I've been trying like my latest cause is. Uh, kind of promoting that recovery is not a binary. It's a spectrum. People exist. Oh, it's a process. Yeah, yeah. And some things work at different times, like total abstinence, 12-step may work at one point of your life. And Mm -hmm. like doing cannabis and mushrooms like may work work at a different point. Fantastic. Because certainly you the things that you've mentioned there really do resonate a lot with me and with our listeners because – one of the things that we've faced a lot here in Australia is uh, getting people informed that undetectable is untransmissible. That is the number one method of HIV prevention is you get people uh, who have HIV undetectable and there is no risk. PrEP comes in at 98% effectiveness, which is number two. Condom usage, 94 and then okay. even lower if Barrier... you're using them properly. I know. <laughs> I know. Barrier-based protecti- protection is less effective than uh, than PrEP or uh, U equals U. U equals U is the gold standard. 100% has never been achieved in anything else. So, yeah, well done there. One of the ones that you mentioned there, the Foster-Sester laws, here in Australia, that actually had a big impact on the, uh, the sex industry here as well, because a lot of the websites that people were using to promote themselves for sex work shut down. Yeah. Craig's, 
Craigslist was a massive part of uh, sex work advertising here in Australia. And uh, so many of the websites that were allowing people to safely advertise their services were taken down, which meant there was a massive uptick in, st- uh, in street-based sex work. There was a lot more risk to sex workers here in Australia. And yeah, so a lot of the things that you've mentioned there are just really well done and you're to be commended for that work. Um, but there's also another thing that you're doing there, which is you actually have a podcast. So reading is fundamental. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Um, so one of my one of my best friends I met in law school and I really connected over Drag Race. I used to actually hate Drag Race. Uh, I thought mm. like RuPaul was exploiting our community and it was a bunch of mm-hmm. bullshit. And then I watched it and I'm like, okay, it is of course making money, but it has really good therapy messages baked into it. And yeah. she's building this platform uh sorry i got a little sidetracked uh but my friend uh is a drag queen and we saw this video uh a youtube video of this person named bussy queen who basically broke down one of the drag race contracts and it was fascinating because you get to see how the show works and understand it and my friend and i were like we're both attorneys we could both be doing this for like other areas in entertainment uh, and our kind of shtick is is I lean into my leather daddy persona. He is a drag persona called Dextra De Novo. And we basically discuss contracts and different topics in entertainment law. But we do it in like this queer, geeky kind of way that breaks it down so that non-attorneys yes. can understand what's going on. And it kind of makes the law fun and more accessible to people. And that's certainly something that is missing in a lot of law discussions as... Uh, a student at law myself, uh, I see a lot of people talking about law and it goes straight into jargon and things that if you haven't studied law, you don't understand it. And a lot of lawyers will just look at you when you say that and think you're, they're looking at you like you just dribbled on your shirt. But it's like, no, law is complicated and people need to understand it. And certainly with the content creator panel that we had last week. I think it's important for us to talk about just what people need to know about their agreements. So one of the episodes that you did of your show was about fan site compliance. So what are the hot button issues there? Yeah, this was, this was one of our baby episodes when we were filming in my friend's and Dexter's living room. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, as I said, one of the goals is, is to take all these complex legal ideas and break them down for content creators who don't have a legal background. Uh, so mm-hmm. in terms of fan site compliance, um, like SESTA-FOSTA came out and it created this kind of like trickling down effect and performers are like, oh, I'm supposed to have all this documentation now. Um, in reality, you always should have had this documentation. If you're producing mm. porn on Just For Fans, you're considered a producer, which means uh, you need to be checking your model's uh, ID and getting a copy of that to make sure that they're 18. Uh, You need to get consent for them to film the scene. And then you also need consent to distribute the scene. And sometimes you even need specific consent to distribute it on OnlyFans and Just For Fans. And I know sites like Just For Fans have built-in consent tools to make this easier for you. And a lot of it can exist online, but a big misconception 
is that it's just for fans responsibility when it's really mm. your responsibility. And if you ever get your content pulled, you want to be able to have your documentation ready to go to be like, no, I have every right to, to, to uh, publish this content so you can get your shit back online. Because sometimes when you get yourself pulled, you lose a stream of income and that may be your only stream of income. And if you don't have your paperwork together, it could take weeks to, to get your content back, even if, and that may not be an option. Yeah, and actually that's something that we know happened to a lot of people that were uploading content onto things, sites like Pornhub. When Pornhub went through and uh, removed a lot of content that couldn't be verified, uh, people lost so much of their uh, their back catalogue because they couldn't prove who these people were, that they had consented, all of that, even though in many cases they'd done all of that at the time. Yeah, I'll, now, I'll, I'll add two more things. Like anyone who shows up in the video, you need consent. So if you're, if you're mm -hmm. shooting like in public and people are walking around in the background and you think you're being all sly, getting your dick sucked, you need the people in the background's consent to be able to publish the video. Yeah. Also, OnlyFans is, uh, I believe, a UK-based company, and UK is a lot more strict on, like, kink and BDSM. Uh, so you can't, mm -hmm. you can't shoot, like, a lot of BDSM and kink content. However, Just For Fans is American and is gay-owned, and they'll let you do fisting and water sports and all the fun stuff that OnlyFans won't let you stream. Yeah, actually, one of the things that you mentioned uh, during this or that was that you like poppers and you cannot use poppers on OnlyFans or the video will get pulled. Yeah, I think technically you're not even supposed to use alcohol either. Really? That one I didn't know. And oddly, in the same family, um, Hypno. Because it all it all kind of falls in the family of non-consent. Either you're inebriated because of alcohol or drugs or being hypnotized. Wow. Okay. Yes, I do remember uh, one of the uh, we had a, a, an erotic hypnotherapist uh, on the show recently, and uh, I remember one of the sites that they pointed us to. That particular person has had a bunch of their videos pulled recently because. OnlyFans has removed all of the the hypno content. Yeah, they OnlyFans kind of use hypno content in the same way that they view like rape content. Okay, so that's a real interesting point. And if you do want to hear more about uh, hypnotherapy and erotic hypnotherapy and the issues surrounding consent, you can listen to our back catalogue of podcasts at joy.org.au forward slash hide and seek. One of the things that you spoke about in your own podcast is exclusive adult performer agreements. And certainly with the, the reference to RuPaul that you made earlier, I think you would understand better than most that exclusive performer agreements can be tricky. And there's a lot of things that you've got to uh, look at and be careful of in those. So what are some of the things you found in adult exclusive performer agreements? Sure. Um, so I think the most important thing that stands out to me uh, about being an exclusive model, which means that you only can work for one studio or even just licensing your content out in general, like you film a scene and you let another platform use it, um, is the term of the contract. And the term of the contract is, is basically for how long the contract lives. 
and mechanisms to terminate the contract if you need to. And the idea behind that is that, um, say you're working exclusive, uh, the contracts for a year or two years, you start creating your name for yourself. At the end of the at the end of your contract, uh, you're able to renegotiate for better terms and ideally better pay. Uh, but if you have this uh, exclusive contract that's in perpetuity that never ends, then there's no reason for the studio to come to the table to negotiate with you. Same thing with licensing your content. If if your content's doing really well uh, and you're licensing it on someone else's site, uh, you want to be able to like renegotiate in six months, a year, two years, whatever feels appropriate for you. Actually, that kind of links into some of the stuff that we're seeing in mainstream media at the moment with the... Uh, with the SAG, uh, SAG-AFTRA and uh, Writers Guild's strikes on at the moment, part of that is looking at the way that people's image can be used and so on, and that with some of the studios wanting uh, license in perpetuity to use people's image, to be able to use AI to uh, create more using that person's image, do you think there's any risk that people will be expected to allow their image to be used in AI porn creation? Um, no. And, and that's mostly because I don't think the studios can afford the AI technology to do it. Um, but in essence, there there is a big parallel. Basically, a porn performer is paid a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars to film one scene. And that's the only payment they ever get. And then the studio can use the images, can use the videos in perpetuity. Uh, and there's mm-hmm. really nothing you could do about it because I mean, at this point, if, and this is really shitty to say, but like, if you kind of speak up and be like, Hey, I don't like this contract, you could try to negotiate your contract, but unless you kind of have some clout around your name, there's always going to be someone else that's ready to step in and, and agree to the shittier contract terms. Yeah, because there's always people waiting in the wings who are ready to get their kid off for camera. Yep. <laughs> and good for them. <laughs> yeah. And look, more power to them. Um, but it does weaken the bargaining position. Uh, so it is very important, as you said, to know what you're getting into. What are the more common ways that people can get out of an exclusive contract? Um, I mean, to really enforce a contract, you need to go to court and the likelihood, like if you're working for a small studio, the likelihood that they're going to be, have the money to sue you and go to court is, I mean, it's a risk you take, but it's likely not going to happen. Uh, the best thing you can do is just wait for your contract to be up or you Mm -hmm. can always you can always reach out and negotiate to end your contract earlier. And maybe, maybe you're like, Hey, my exclusive contracts for five years, but if, if I film five movies for you right now, can we just end it at the end of the fifth movie? And that's just an example. It could be yeah. whatever, but you're never, you're legally bound to a contract, but you're always able to go to the other party and negotiate and come up with a new contract. Mm. And it really is about just finding those mutually agreeable terms. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think the big takeaway is is don't do anything exclusive forever. Do it for a short amount of time and then always try to renegotiate if possible. 
And set your limits, yeah. Uh, Look, I think one of the things that you mentioned was queer-specific law, and I think something I've noticed is that uh, in some areas, uh, queer people, and in particular uh, adult entertainers or sex workers, do find it difficult to find uh, or get legal representation. Is that something that you've been exposed to? Yeah, um, I think that that queer people, especially queer sex workers, um, have less opportunity um, to pursue professional uh, careers, whether it's less means to go to school um, or less uh, kind of just access and then it just like kind of self-perpetuates. I think that's with the traditional poor model and sex work model that perpetuates that. But um, I do like how Just for Fans kind of to me, I'm a huge Buffy fan. And to me, like Just for Fans activates all the potentials. And now anyone can be a sex worker and monetize it. And I think it's helping because now we have doctors and attorneys and therapists who are open about doing sex work and it normalizes it. And then it normalizes. It's not weird anymore for these (laughs) professionals to also be sex workers and that shows visibility to the other end of the sex workers to be like, Hey, we could do this too. And hopefully one day it will be just like tattoos or like 20 years ago, you couldn't be a doctor with tattoos that was unspoken of. And now everyone has a tattoo and no one thinks twice about it. That's fantastic. And certainly if you are looking for queer specific law support, then Fitzroy legal services launched a new project Q plus law. So They're now based in the Victorian Pride Centre. They're launching their service next week. So if you are looking for queer-specific legal practitioners, contact Q Plus Law here at the Victorian Pride Centre. And one of the other ones that you mentioned, uh, Stefan, is addiction support and getting addiction support to meet people where they are. There's a lot of programs, there's a lot of services that will drive an abstinence-only model. So what do you think goes into supporting people who are queer, who are uh, sex workers, who are struggling with addiction? How can people help? Yeah, I'd say if you're on the other end and it's someone that you know or love that's experiencing addiction, um, ask how you could be supportive. Try to come in without judgment. We're all people. We all go through human experiences. Um, I think a lot of people in the queer community um, have experimented with meth and you may or may not know that about them. And if you're on the other side, if you're experiencing issues uh, with substances, um, I would say don't don't accept the first answer. I think there's so many times where I've walked into a 12-step meeting and they're like, you need to be totally abstinent or you need to not have sex the first year in sobriety. And yes, that is one valid way of doing recovery. But in that room, there's 30 or more people there and that's 30 different opinions of how to do recovery. Look for someone that you admire and you respect. Uh, I've, because I'm a sex worker, I found that sex worker sponsors are great because they know how to like operate in that field. So find someone who's doing recovery how you like and then connect with them and try to emulate it. I I never even thought of the concept of an abstinence only, uh, 
like a sex abstinence uh, situation with recovery groups because that to me is completely counterintuitive. I mean, particularly if people are recovering from things like methamphetamine, they've got to retrain their body to actually get positive dopamine responses and sex is a great way to do that. So I just, I find that gobsmacking that people would uh, step away from that. And is that really a, a thing? Yeah, I, I think it depends on where you live. I'm lucky to live in sex positive San Francisco, but like I've gone, I've gone to many meetings in Las Vegas, which is less sex positive, And you hear people share, they like, they like mix up the drug use and the sex and they're like, I'm sober, but like I went to the glory holes and I sucked 10 dicks and I shouldn't be doing that because it's not heteronormative and that's such addict behavior. And it's like, no, like you could be a slut. I I also see like a lot. Oh, okay. There's, there's a lot going on there. (laughs) Wow. I also feel like a lot of queer people and maybe this is judgmental, but like misidentify themselves as sex addicts because they become sober and then some straight person or some like doctor is like, all the sex you're doing is also problematic. Like it's, it's not normal. You shouldn't be doing that when really they're just living like a healthy queer. A sex positive life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, wow. I never expected that that was the reality that people were living with because I just thought, is that level of sex negative really uh, going on in the world so much uh, today? So look, thank you for that. Because uh, for those of you who are uh, looking for support with addiction or who know someone who is uh, struggling with addiction, then you can go to joy.org.au forward slash support or for specific supports here in Australia, you've got Q Health here in uh, Victoria or Pivot Point in New South Wales. There's a bunch of others that uh, if you contact us at hideandseek at joy.org.au, we can point you in the right direction. But Certainly the AIDS councils across Australia are really good at having a list of local services. Um, look, we are just about out of time, Stefan, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight because you have been a wealth of information. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great chatting with you. That's absolutely okay. You can listen to this episode on your favorite podcast platform or on iHeartRadio. You can have been with the Sexperts here on Hide and Seek on Joy 94.9. Thank you very much. Have a great evening. Do you want more? Yes! Yes! Oh! Yes! Yes! Oh! Catch all the Hide and Seek episodes on podcast at joy.org.au slash hide and seek. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.